I'm Joe Agoda, and this is the Let's Break Good Podcast, where we never settle for good enough. To start the new year, we have an interview with Ghanaian entrepreneur Bright Simmons. Bright is the president of M Pedigree, a social enterprise that has developed novel solutions to the problem of harmful counterfeit drugs and agricultural products across Africa and Asia. Bright is a thought leader for the social impact sector and a pioneer on powerful multi-sectoral partnerships that create ways of doing business that solve critical human problems. Bright has a long list of recognitions, including TED Fellow, Ashoka Fellow, Fortune Magazine's 50 Top World's Greatest Leaders, and just last year was given the prestigious Skull Award for Social Entrepreneurship. Welcome to the podcast, Bright. We're thrilled to have you. I want to break free. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. It's a delight to be here. All right, Bright, let's jump right into it. I want to start by asking you about one of your first experiences with counterfeiting or scams that you can remember becoming angry at from your youth years. So um, when I think back, I, I remember that uh, once I was growing up in Ghana, the herbal medicine space was normalized with scams, by which I mean that it was natural to expect someone, you know, peddling herbal medicines um, to make ridiculous claims about it, the efficacy of the product that they were selling. And everybody took that as normal. So one, you know, herbal medicine um, could cure uh, gonorrhea, um, fever, typhoid, um, at least 60 different um, her- uh, medical conditions. And they would sell them in cars. They would sell them on, on by the roadside. And we never really paid that much attention to the fact that these were um, obvious scams. Um, but in terms of a personal experience, I remember in, in secondary school, one time I got ill. Um, I got prescribed for, um, um, I got prescribed an antibiotic for a suspected typhoid. And I returned back to school because I had to leave school. And then I returned back to school. Um, and the condition just worsened. And now that I think back to all of these situations, it occurs to me um, that growing up in Ghana, uh, the medical scams at least were constant. It's just that we never really paid attention to them because they didn't appear to be an alternative uh, that clearly marked them out for the scams they were. And obviously that experience stayed with you because it became part of an inspiration to your social enterprise M Pedigree. So I'm hoping what you can do now uh, is tell us a little bit about that organization uh, for those who may not know what it does and how it got started. So for the many years that, you know, I lived in Ghana and the few, you know, in the very fair set of years that I lived outside Ghana, it never occurred to me that kind of thing was a problem to be solved. Um, and, it, my my route to you know my route to get into this um, context was somewhat runabout. So I had you know I migrated from Ghana or immigrated from Ghana um, to spend time overseas pursuing educational and other opportunities. And I was in the UK at the time and started to experience skin conditions. Someone made an offhand comment 
that these conditions may be related to a change in diet. Uh, because they appeared allergic, but you know, allergenic, but it wasn't entirely clear what might cause in them. Um, so I decided to change my diet to move to organic food. Um, and lo and behold, the condition did improve. My skin um, conditions abated. I found that very interesting. But one day I was standing in the supermarket picking up one of these organic cereals, uh, and it struck me that the only reason I'm paying more for this, um, in the hope that it will be better than the normal cereal, was because of a stamp on the box that said it was organic and that that stamp had come from Soil Association. The power of trust was evident. Uh, and in the moment as I stood there contemplating what it meant, it appeared very obvious that unless we could somehow create a platform for trust, most of the benefits of trust will not accrue to those who deserve it most. Um, and at that time, I was thinking about farmers in Africa who do grow, not all of them, but a good number of them, particularly subsistence farmers, do grow their crops organically by default, simply because they just don't have the resources to buy the chemicals um, that are so widely used in Western agriculture. But because of the absence of any platform to amplify um, that advantage, they are unable to sell their produce as organic. I found that quite unfair, but also an interesting opportunity. And I set about with others, most of them were PhD students, to build a platform that will enable African farmers to be able to market their produce, their vegetables and fruits um, as organic. So that was the initial spur. Now, it became rapidly obvious as we moved along that it wasn't the technology that was at the core of any potential revolution in this area. What was at, at issue was how you build the right kind of alliances. And we needed to find an organization that already had trust in the marketplace to put their seal on these fruits and vegetables from Africa so that consumers, and but particularly supermarkets um, in the West, will accept them as organic. So we went around trying to find um, potential partners in this regard. And it was obvious that the costs of doing so was just too much because, you know, at that time, I think they were talking about $6,000 a day to do these audits that will enable them to grant the seal um, to these African cooperatives that we're trying to set up in agriculture. Long story short, we were never able to mobilize the resources that were necessary um, to uh, enable us to apply for these certifications on behalf of these farmers. So we decided to try a purely technological route. And what we did was we decided to build a system that will enable the supermarket to directly connect to the farms and then a traceability system so you know exactly that the produce came from those farms. What we underestimated was the sheer lack of capacity uh, on the part of African farmers to adopt the solution on their side. So it's not that difficult for a supermarket like a Tesco or a Walmart or whatever. To, um, to use technology to connect to the supply chain, but it's very difficult for the farmers at the bottom to rise uh, in step, in lockstep, and respond to the, to the new opportunities that are made available by technology. Um, because we didn't have the resources to empower the farmers, this idea didn't go very far. But we built um, some technology. We had also built capacity. We built knowledge. Um, and we develop experience, business experience, organizational experience that at that time will have gone to waste had it not occurred to us 
that perhaps we could repurpose those technologies and um, experiences elsewhere. And so it was around this time that a documentary, first on local television, but then eventually another documentary on the same subject on the BBC, talking about counterfeit medicines and particularly a couple of incidents in Nigeria where a lot of people had died. In one instance, a lot of infants had died uh, because someone had decided to contaminate um, the pediatric medicine that these young infants were taking in order to cut costs. They had used unacceptable ingredients and these had led to a number of deaths, dozens of deaths, in fact. So we, so I, I think I was, I remember one time standing in the bus stop or someplace like that and it's suddenly occurring to me that the problem of is my fruit or vegetable organic and it's my medicine or the medicine for my child genuine it's actually very similar they're all issues around trust and how do you build platforms that connects different segments of society consumers, producers, farmers, supermarkets, etc., um, around a shared interest in, in maintaining and upholding trust. So that has become my life's work. How do you build technologies, systems, protocols, platforms, mechanisms that amplify trust, enable trust to circulate? So we, we did go ahead and then build this, um, change a few things about our platform, went to Ghana, got a few pharmaceutical companies interested, rolled out a pilot, enable consumers to verify the medicines they are buying um, came from the um, advertised source. In the course of doing that, we learned so much, which I'm sure um, we can obviously discuss on, on this podcast. In terms of how we progressed, like I mentioned earlier, when we went first to my, my home country, the country I know the most at that time, Ghana. We managed to get a pilot. At that time, remember, we were non-profits. And our goal at that point was to simply mobilize capacity that we knew already existed and then to connect the right stakeholders in order to address the problem. So we had gone to Hillet Parkard to provide a data center infrastructure. We had gone to the telecom companies to provide a kind of 911 interface, you know, a public short code, which is um, a short um, memorable phone number um, made toll free so that costs will not be a barrier to adoption. And we'd also gone to the different key players in the, manuf in the pharmaceutical manufacturing industry um, to try and get endorsements as well as to get them to, to volunteer for the pilots. Now we brought all of these entities together in my first exposure to something that has also become a very important framework within which I do my current work. And this idea of multi-stakeholder partnerships that cut across lines of difference. Um, and we rolled out a, um, a model based on these partnerships in Ghana. Then we realized over time, it was very difficult to get, um, if, if we were going to be the lead organization, to get the right contracts in place if we remain a nonprofit because of the nature of the market at present, uh, insists that if you're going to enter into contracts, deliver services, particularly services that are critical to production or distribution or any of these operational elements of business development, then you ought to be a for-profit. Um, very few people are able to see beyond um, the conventional in that regard. So we had to set up a for-profit um, and then enter into new partnerships. But at this time, more or less being the one that bears liability for everything working well. So it's not just that we coordinate a partnership among stakeholders, 
but we go beyond that to be the ones delivering the service and guaranteeing its efficacy, etc. So we then expanded beyond Ghana in time, moving first to Nigeria, um, and where we managed to get the first full integration of our services into the government system, which I'll, I hope I'll have opportunity to talk about that again um, in the course of this discussion. But that was very critical and very eye-opening, getting the government regulatory system to use our technology as part and parcel of how they protect their population um, from the, the schedule of, of, of fake medicines. By that time, we obviously knew a lot more about the scale of the problem. So there have been studies that have been conducted um, on the quality of medicines in, uh, on sale in many countries in West Africa. And in, often you find out that, you know, the level of failure, that is the medicines that don't work um, due to any of the, the, the issues that I've mentioned before, will range from between 30% to as high as 80% in some of the tests. So essentially, you will go and take 100 anti-malarial pills, you will take them through um, standardized testing, and you will come out with the conclusion that, you know, as much as 80%, um, or if you're lucky, 30% of all the pills that you tested don't match the quality standards. Um, and in that regard, it was obvious that we had an epidemic and a crisis on our hands, and it required agency. So getting the government regulatory system itself to embrace these solutions became very important for us. And subsequently, we expanded to more countries in Africa. Um, then we, we crossed the oceans into India and North Africa. And now we do about three continents. Mm -hmm. what, what a fascinating story around trust and verification in what's real and what's not. Uh, it sounds like it started with a trip to the grocery store in the cereal aisle, uh, went into agriculture, uh, and you started to test the waters to see what could be possible around this trust idea. And you found a life and death issue, which was medicine that wasn't going to be able to do its job because it was counterfeit or because it was, you know, no longer uh, good. And you were able to start to grow this organization around trying to solve a problem in that space. And I'm interested to follow up with you that you started as a nonprofit, but then you realized you wanted to transition to a for-profit company. Um, and I think around nonprofits and companies, trust is an issue too. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that beginning decision to be a nonprofit when you realized you needed to probably transition to for-profit and what was the differences you felt? So we realized very quickly that we could fight one battle at a time. We could fight a battle to change minds around, you know, the, the what you might call the conventional irrelevance of these labels, what is a non-profit, what's a for-profit, a lot of these things are labels because deep down, they often don't make much of a difference in terms of delivery. But you have legal realities in terms of what a for-profit is and what a non-profit is. You have business leaders understanding of the difference among them. Um, and we could spend a decade trying to change that concept by, you know, being very suboptimal, but still maybe making a lot of... Um, um, bringing a lot of light to the issue, or we could spend a decade trying to fight a problem that we had identified. And we decided that, look, it wasn't worth our while to try and change the mindset um, of a whole generation um, if, in our mind, the most urgent problem was this issue of, of trust. So, so we made a very, you know, pragmatic decision that if the companies want to sign with a for-profit, because as one of them told us um, a bit lightheartedly, but quite pointedly too, um, you know, we want a company, we, uh, we want a partner we can sue if things go wrong, 
um, and seeing on profit is not very if, um, very uh, interesting to us. So some of those comments kind of told us that people have a view of what you can do with a non-profit and what you can't do with a non-profit. That sometimes are not very linked to the reality of, uh, of delivery itself. It's linked to notions um, and sentiments. But we, we moved along. And then September for profit then raises a number of, of, of issues, of course. And um, that is that when you then go to um, another partner, say you, you sign a contract with a pharmaceutical company, and then you go to a data center company and you say, look, I'm a nonprofit and I'm trying to control costs. That's a very important dimension of the work that I do. So can you discount your service in a particular way? Or can you change the way that you deliver the service in a particular way? Or because of the fact that we are very concerned about the side effects. Um, because you see, the problem with having a social enterprise model um, and an abnormal enterprise model or a commercial enterprise model. And that distinction is not just labels. That, that There's a deep, true, um, and genuine distinction between the two. And I'll explain. When I go, if you go to a data center and you say that because of the nature of our work, we're also concerned about the side effects of our interventions in a way that a corporation doesn't have to be because they pay taxes and they can leave some of those externalities to other parties to address. In a social enterprise, it doesn't work that way you are responsible for the side effects of the of the intervention that you make. So if you say, look, Mr. Data Center, I, I'm interested in um, the data, the treatment of the data that goes through your data center beyond my own four walls. And therefore, I want a specified or rather a specific um, clause in the agreement that deals with how you handle the data in a way that perhaps your other customers who are commercial customers um, have not considered important. It, the issue is whether you have the power the bargaining power to, de to demand it. So I have always felt that one of the big uh, gaps in, 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 in the industry, in the development and the, the do-good industry, um, is the misunderstanding of power. Because by purporting to do good, we become responsible for the side effects of um, our interventions. And by becoming responsible for the side effects of our interventions, our span of operations expand. So our span of operations expand, which reduces our profitability, but that's fine. We are happy, you know, addressing side effects that others will ignore, and that takes time, money, and energy. That's fine. But it also requires power to, to compel or to induce or to persuade um, third parties who are also responsible for other aspects of the operation to, 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 to get involved. So one of the first things that we discovered when we built our solution, and maybe I should describe how our solution works at this point, is that we apply a unique ID, think of it like a 1D password, uh, sorry, a one-time password to each product. And this one-time password, if you send it into our system, whether you send it by text message or you scan it with a camera phone, or you call a call center and give them that number, whatever method you use to send it into our platform, and our platform keys it in and locks it, uh, log it. So by the login, if it comes in again, the system knows something has been breached because we expect it to come in only once. Um, and then we trigger a whole range of um, analytics to try and figure out why is this code coming again? Where is it coming from? What had happened before then? And that algorithm is essentially what our, our secret sources, our ability to use the data that is coming in and to try and uh, develop a profile of the risk. What I find interesting is that you took your focus onto breaking a problem rather than breaking 
a mindset, which you saw was going to have to be the focus if you were a nonprofit. You're going to have to spend quite some time breaking mindsets. And if you wanted to focus on the problem, then the for-profit model was going to be uh, the one that you wanted to pursue. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more then about your business model that is really tackling this problem and how that grew in how you would describe that that business model overall. So our business model um, involved us um, building a platform called Gold Keys that integrated these key stakeholders. Five of them are really important. The regulator, the manufacturer, the distributor, the retailer, and the consumer. And then you have others like independent researchers, maybe donor organizations, civil society groups that must also integrate over time and where we are currently working on um, to steadily see how we, we, we get that done. I call this the multi-stakeholder platform model of solving problems. And I argue that going forward, almost all the big problems that really must be solved because we've postponed solving problems for too long uh, in, 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 uh, in place of um, delivering services and paid services that we've got to a point where we can't continue. And which, which of your stakeholders are paying into your system to make it possible out of those five? Indeed, I'm coming to that. So the way that it currently works is that the consumer obviously get a service for free, but they produce actionable intelligence, which is critical, and they produce additional insights. So they're not really getting it for free in that sense. They contribute what they can. The regulator also gets the software for free, but they are not really getting it for free because they are responsible for investigating if there's a, um, an incident of a fake. They are responsible for doing the rapid response. They integrate that data together to help law enforcement to remove counterfeiters. So they do their bits. Retailers, which, which you know, which is the level of um, the supply chain we struggle the most to integrate, and we're still working on that. They their job really is to assure the consumer um, that the, the supply chain, from a professional point of view, is not going to harm them. So in order not to disrupt the trust between, say, a pharmacist and a and a consumer or a patient, we wanted the pharmacist to be the one that does the first check. And then when they are short, they accept the product and then they give it to the consumer because they have done their own check in our system. Um, and so they will rather encourage the consumer to check it in order to position themselves as trusted suppliers. So we build technology for them as well, which currently we don't charge for. The two that pay for our services directly in monetary terms are the manufacturers and the distributors. Um, the truth though is that when we often argue that they, they also play a role of integrating the data that is coming in to improve the supply chain. Um, but because counterfeiters compete directly with them for market share, we make the argument that we cut costs for them by removing the counterfeits. And then secondly, we give them actionable intelligence of how their supply chain is evolving. So I always tell people they don't realize how currently we pick um, the, the, the market for products in most places uh, outside the West. So if you take the U.S., the U.S. has maybe four large distribution networks for medicines, four large ones. And it's a country of 300 million people um, with um, a, 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 a medical or a pharmaceutical market that is hundreds of billions of dollars. But they have four major distributors. And that's about five major or so pharmacy chains or retail chains that really distribute medicines across the country. If you go to Ghana, there are 10,000 pharmacies of which maybe 9,000 of them are independents. Now, on top of that, if you think of 
um, distributors, there are several hundreds of distributors, of which at least a hundred of them um, are important in their own right. If you want to integrate the system in such a manner that as a manufacturer, as a business person, as an investor, you have insight into how the market is evolving, you need a centralized platform of some kind. It's way too difficult to do what you do in the US, which is simply call for research reports, because unlike in the US, we don't have the degree of consolidation that exists. And any change that is going to happen has to happen through some kind of meta platform. You can't have uh, independent individual innovators trying to plug into the system because you have to go and talk to 10,000 pharmacists to introduce any new service. So having a meta platform of some kind, which is what we're trying to provide, should help. Now, when the Re, um, the con sorry, the manufacturer or the brand owner wants to understand what is happening in the market. They have to wait for these multitudes of distributors to give them information. But with our system, they're able to tell before they get information from the distributor what is happening in real time because people are buying your medicines and telling you in real time we are buying your medicines. So they are getting this frontline market-related intelligence ahead of information coming in from distributors in the form of orders or returns. So that is critical information that will have cost them millions of dollars to collect, which the system provides at no cost. So if you think of it, is the fact that you bring stakeholders together to create a network that generates trust and then literally creates value. Mm. So it's like, okay, on their own, they don't have much, you know, to boast about. But when they integrate, so much value is created that that value pays for the cost of integration. Mm. And I think that is the new dynamic around these meta platforms that I think are the future of development and um, the future of the capitalist system. You've been able to create a grow the pie scenario instead of zero sum. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to get there, your organization has to partner with a lot of corporations, uh, pharmaceuticals, distributors, and I want to talk a little bit about that because a lot of people, I think, choose the nonprofit route because they want trust and they want to take these problems. They feel like to work with the community and gain their trust, the nonprofit sets them up to do that. Um, some people might say working with a corporation um, is selling out or breaks their trust because they can't trust a profit-making entity. So maybe you can talk a little bit about both the good and the bad of partnering and working so closely with a corporation to solve a problem. Um, the world of problem solving is the world we are in now. You know, the world of um, the illusion of of, of choice um, is, is rapidly disintegrating in the face of climate change, in the face of mass inequality, poverty. So we are getting to a state where people want problems really solved, as opposed to being told that, you know, this solves their problem. Um, and that requires a new way of thinking about the problems, because the problems cannot be solved that easily. If you're thinking of addiction to tobacco, or you are thinking of homelessness, you, you can't solve them in the way that, you know, we've solved the problem of uh, um, uh, affo affordable nutrition through fast food joints. You get me? Fast food joints is not a real solution. It makes a lot of money, but it doesn't really solve the issue of nutrition. When you get to the point where you really want to solve nutrition, you really want to solve homelessness, you really want to solve addiction, you need a really different business model. And that business model, the only one that I can think of that really works is this multi-stakeholder integration thing. If you are for-profit and you go through this hyper-integration 
um, approach that is increasingly the only way to solve complex problems. Or if you're a non-profit and you go through it, increasingly their effect is to, is to um, dissolve some of these distinctions. Mm -hmm. So I think there is that, that's a very important point to make, which is that there's a new way of solving problems, or rather there's a new emphasis on solving problems. Truly solving problems require hyper-integration, integrating multiple um, nodes or multiple partners together. And when you do that, whether you're a for-profit or a non-profit, the distinction is not that clear to me anymore. Now, if you start off with that theory, then your question of, okay, but how do you maintain trust in that kind of system? I think it arises from the nature of the system. So if you take the um, fair trade, the organic um, um, certification system, the Marine Stewardship Council um, as a model, if you take some of the um, emerging models around waste disposal and recycling, you find out that typically you have multiple partners of different um, persuasions, some for-profit, some non-profit, some government, some civil society, working together around an integrated platform to solve a problem. And I think that is the new reality. And that new reality means, therefore, that the trust is generated. So you don't start off with the trust. So it's not like, okay, do I trust a for-profit or do I trust a non-profit? The trust created in the process of creating these platforms. Mm -hmm. um, and then you say, okay, you know, what are the obvious trends that emphasizes this? And I say, okay, look at the way that Facebook is trying to do this Libratum. Uh, immediately, it's quite obvious that it recognizes that it cannot do it in the old platform model where it's at the center and then everybody else is orbiting around them. It has to go and do bilateral partnerships with multiple entities. The mistake that's done is that it's not recognized that you cannot do it only with businesses. If it's really going to get, you know, this mass cryptographic um, uh, currency model or whatever it is that they want to do out there, he's going to have to open up and partner with a lot more than businesses. But he's, they don't recognize that yet, but they would in a few years. If you think of, you know, how we are thinking around carbon credits, and we've been thinking about it for a long time. In the past, we thought we could use, you know, traditional business exchanges to do carbon credits. We realized that it's led to rampant fraud. It's not possible. To do real carbon credit will require an integrated system which has regulators, which has consumers, which has businesses all involved in order to make this truly viable. So I'm saying that all of these real problems and the real solutions that must address these real problems call for a new hyper-integrated model of problem solving. And the way that I see them is multi-stakeholder platforms. And these multi-stakeholder platforms dissolve the boundaries between industries. So I always say that uh, when you look at what we are doing, it's not entirely clear whether we are in the supply chain business, whether we are in the brand protection and security business, whether we are in the consumer um, um, service or co customer service or consumer response business. It's all dissolved into this really interesting mash. Hmm. And that is happening now. Industries are colliding because the same technology that works in one do domain works in another domain. The same protocol that works in one domain works in another one. And as we fuse technology and protocols, we're creating institutional operating systems. We're creating institutions that are, have been digitized. And because they have been digitized, they are, you can think of them as operating systems for whole institutions. So you take the institution of regulation, you take the institution of um, 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 financial services, um, the macroeconomy, and all of these things are becoming operating systems. Now, when that happens and you dissolve the boundary between industries, you also have to watch out for the ongoing dissolution of the boundaries between classical businesses um, and classical NGOs.
And we are seeing this interesting new hybrids uh, that are made possible because of the nature of the problems that have to solve. What does that do with you know the nature of partnerships? I think it's a very important point question that you've raised twice now. I think the profundity of it is that increasingly, because we are all going to be so problem oriented because of the new agency and also the the fact that we've you know really screwed up for so long, mm -hmm. people are going to be less concerned about what the labels are that went in and more concerned about what was it that was output out. And the trust is going to be result-oriented trust. So if you want to partner with, um, and so Ryan and Phillips want to partner with a whole bunch of entities to improve this notion of connected care, what, where are we you know, deriving some of these insights from? We are deriving them from the debacle that we've seen with artificial intelligence and its attempt to move into healthcare, where really big global platform companies have gone in and they are struggling. They are struggling because they realize that in order for AI to be integrated into care, you're going to have to deal with hospitals as hospitals. You're going to have to deal with medical and health trusts. You're going to have to deal with regulatory authorities, patient rights activists. And none of them are just going to step aside and let you come in and monetize it and walk out. So this idea of just paid services doesn't work anymore. You need to deliver a real solution. Now, we saw a recent example where a very big technology company went into the UK, signed a partnership with the National Health um, Service um, to try and use AI to improve diagnosis. And very quickly, they realized that, no, it doesn't work in the way that they thought it worked. There are silos, silos that they have to connect to. There are different rules and standards and norms. Uh, and the only way to truly do it is a, an equal partnership among the partners in order for the AI system to be allowed access into areas where traditionally it would be bad. What kind of model will that be? Non-profit, for-profit, whatever, people don't care as much. But they do care that the problem gets solved. Um, and the only way to solve that problem is through these very elaborate partnerships where the trust is earned. So I don't think anybody's going to necessarily have issues with, um, sorry, anybody's going to um, um, give you the benefit of the doubt um, because of particular claims. What is increasingly going to happen is that people are going to be more interested in whether the problems are being solved or not. Um, and the transparency that is generated by these platforms will make it clear whether they are being solved or not. I mean, that is where the trust will come from. Yeah, if we have problems that are tens or hundreds of years old, I really agree. We need to transcend titles. We need to let go of titles and think about what it's going to take to solve the problem. And you really describe this multi-stakeholder ecosystem, you know, combined trust that needs to get there. Um, I do want to pivot a little bit now because I think a lot of our audience and listeners are considering for themselves a uh, career in uh, impact, maybe as a social entrepreneur. And they often come to me and say, well, what should I do? What can be my first steps? And I say that to do this, you're going to have to build a network. And a network is critical to, to success. And I want to have a little conversation with you about network. And how I want to start that is with a little lightning round session uh, where I'm going to name a few network building events that I know you've been a part of. And with each one, if you could give me a favorite memory or a person or a conversation you've had and why it was significant to you. So this is a lightning round. Uh, I'm going to do about five of them. And then uh, we'll follow up with, again, a discussion about building your network as a change maker, as a social entrepreneur. All right. Mm -hmm. You ready? Yep. Okay. The first one, United Nations General Assembly. So at the UN General Assembly, on the silence of the UN General Assembly a couple of years ago, um, I spent time with Bono for the first time. And I've met him, I think, once or twice before. 
um, but I spent time through um, a relationship with Juan. I got to spend a bit more time with Bono. Um, and what that brought to mind, what the, you know, the, the stimulation that that gave me um, was this new idea of sorts of legitimacy for um, problem solving. Um, I'm not sure how much, how aware you are, but um, Bono's involvement in debt relief is a very interesting case study um, of new forms of legitimacy. Um, in a world where increasing attention is the biggest um, impediment to mobilization for good. So increasingly, there are too many problems. Um, some of these problems um, are being subdivided into little problems, um, each of them with their own little champion. Um, and we're competing for attention. Attention is the new currency. So how do you work with unexpected sources of um, legitimacy because you can somehow navigate and, and crack the attention puzzle? And I, I think working with seeing how Bono used his celebrity to get into really complicated technocratic areas um, and brought attention to that, uh, opened my mind to um, this issue of attention and how critical it is to doing good nowadays. Excellent. Okay, next, World Economic Forum. So the World Economic Forum more or less invented the, um, the multi-stakeholder paradigm as a problem-solving tool. Um, and I remember you know, when I first went there as a, as a technology pioneer, um, I was listening to J.P. Rangaswamy um, talk about, you know, the emerging, you know, cloud-enabled services and how they will create the possibility to do more centralization at the same time more decentralization. Um, and one of the things that I've always enjoyed about, you know, doing the World Economic Forum events is the number of um, thought leaders who come there. And regardless of whether they are in the private or the public domain, um, they're very focused on this futurism as a tool of uh, mobilizing for the present. And I found that very interesting. So the way it works is this. You paint a scenario of the future um, and you harp on it so strongly that because people have to be ready for the future, your ability to influence current events strengthens. So I've seen people talk about the fourth industrial revolution and the future of work and robotics and AI. But as Jason Fairman recently pointed out, what is interesting is not to predict the future, um, but to tell us what is it that we've done today where we've been, we've, uh, um, which has cast light on how badly we did yesterday. So by doing that, we, we are much more effective in using insights from futurism to address the present because they give us a tool. You know, so when we say, okay, what is going to happen with, um, the, with employment in a world where AI is so, so much more effective, we're not really trying to predict what is going to happen because nobody knows what is going to happen. But we create a language which we can apply to today. So if we think of things like, you know, skills, transferability and cross-transferability of scale, because of the notion of artificial general intelligence, it means, therefore, that we start to think about whether formal education systems are the only places to provide skills. Why not make the whole society a learning platform so that as people navigate through work, as they navigate through church, as they navigate through the different aspects of their life, they are learning more. That comes about in a world where you think of AI as artificial general intelligence and the new implications it has. And I think that is a very interesting thing that I learned from attending various top leader type sessions at the World Economic Forum. Some of those leaders I've already mentioned, who I met I've already mentioned. All right, let's do one more. Skull World Forum. So the Skull World Forum, as you rightly know, um, is now the home of systems entrepreneurship um, and the idea of um, um, creating these really interesting organic 
formations um, for problem solving that are very different. Um, and I think school's decision to increasingly prioritize systems entrepreneurship um, beyond um, just social entrepreneurship uh, is fascinating. And in my recent visit to Oxford for this, I, I had opportunity to speak to people, you know, groups like Global Witness um, and several other really interesting leaders like Raj Punjabi, um, who are building these new networks for delivering um, change um, around this idea mm -hmm. of systems entrepreneurship as the next level of social entrepreneurship. And I, I think that was very intriguing. All right. So you've mentioned some good ones there. So from my experience, some of these events become just talk and shaking hands, good vibes, but no action. How can people who go to these events and are looking to build their stakeholders not fall into that trap? Very, very, very good, very tough question. Uh, I think that as a source of inspiration, um, they can be effective by letting you understand what is the trend. So you may not agree with what is going on, but it has reality. So if a lot of the leaders, if, if indeed these places are places where um, leaders are congregating, so you have to first ask yourself, um, is this place where the leaders of the industry, the, the people that are making the changes, is this where they are going to come from? And sometimes the answer is no in some disciplines. So if you think of, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and you think of um, the Facebook, the Google founders, um, et cetera, would you have seen them um, at a WEF conference in 2002? Um, no. You will not have. So um, there are people undercover who have the truly revolutionary instincts who will not be at these events. So you have to be clear what is it that you are you are thinking about. Um, so so I'm, so in that respect, I describe transporting in two different ways. There's transporting us in what is going to happen, which you don't want to be going to these places, you know, highly uh, privileged locations to try and understand that because you're going to get lost. You're probably going to go, better go into somewhere. Uh, which is known for bringing mavericks together, um, et cetera. But there is another type of trend sporting, which is that there are things already going on, but you want to give it a uniform um, framework in order to understand it better. So you say, okay, what are the current trends? Mm. Meaning that what is it that is governing the decisions that sometimes don't appear to make sense on the surface, um, but you need to dig beneath and to find out what are the sprints. And in, in that regard, these places are very important for, no, for noticing those things because you see the group tank, you see the bubble chambers, but you also see increasingly the dissent because some people come in there and bring in with them the dissent that they brought for, the, or the dissension that they've seen from outside. And so I think they are quite important for noticing understanding better why it is that things are the way they are today in the world, particularly those that congregate thought leaders who are influential today. Mm. So that's one. Mm. So looking at why is that in your particular industry, um, certain you know behaviors um, are so predominant. Um, the only way to, to understand that is to understand the vocabulary that is being um, um, developed in these places. They, they define a lot. The second one uh, is to find meaning outside titles. So a lot of people go around and they go like, okay, I want to build um, um, a, a solution for youth unemployment. So automatically, I want to go talk to um, a big foundation that can give me money for that. Uh, automatically, I want to go and talk to a big headhunting organization because they must know something about, um, uh, about unemployment. Um, and often they put people in these bot boxes. Mm. Um, and they obviously are very disappointed because the conversation is so superficial that the other person is not entirely sure what it is that you can do for them because of the way that you approach it. So the second thing that I will advise is 
one or two to a be clear what is that you are contributing and you are willing to offer mm. that also can help you decide who to meet because if you want to meet someone that you can't do anything for the likelihood that you're going to strike a deal is very low so you have to be very clear what is it that i can offer and if what is it that you can offer is well uh, analyzed by yourself you might find out that it influences who you decide to connect with at that event to be you also want to find out whether people believe their titles are more interesting because you have a real personal connection so serendipity is critical if you cannot connect to a personal level with someone then it has to be very transactional and in which case you need to be super super well researched but if you can connect at a personal level then things will grow from there so if you discover that under the surface this person has this title but actually it's what he's really interested about interested in and you know a whole bunch of people that could you could you could lead to them um, then you you offer value um, and the person is likely to find the conversation memorable so that's two number three is also to recognize that um a lot of the the opportunities arise from confusion where there is you know a collision of trends and people are not sure what is the new thing and everybody's scrambling around in order to detect those things you need to be confident enough to believe that people don't know what they want so to give an example we've had a giving pledge now for quite a while um, and the giving pledge is that um it's something that you know bill gates and i think warren buffett and a few others um have come up with which is to compel um the super rich in the world to give half their income away so half of their accumulated wealth away um at, or at least half of their accumulated wealth away and not pass it on to to the to, to their own family and now the problem that we has become evident is that a lot of these billionaires claim that they can't spend their money quick enough on philanthropy that there's a philanthropic bottleneck that the philanthropic pipeline uh, is not actually very uh, effective in deploying capital and they don't know what to do now and most people don't realize that that is actually confusion at the top of the at the, at the elite level i assume that the real problem is scarcity of money but it's not really scarcity of money it's really new legitimacy to collect money mm. and to understand that you need to go there with the confidence of looking for confusion and ambiguity um and not going there looking for answers and order and coherence alone so i, I made the point about looking for trends um, but that doesn't mean that you go there assuming that there are answers there that you're going to go pick up you go there looking for what is the current confusion and what is the and i discovered that actually philanthropic bottlenecks is not a huge problem some people claim that is because of this new focus on empirical results and how to measure empirical results um, and a lot of people that are in philanthropy today came from the world of business and they are used to data-driven decision making the problem with data-driven decision making is that so many of our problems are not that easily susceptible to these types of measurements um, and so they are striving to find out what works um, and because they, they are not always so clear what works they were not willing to put up mm -hmm. uh, to put a lot of money behind many of the solutions that today are clamoring for attention that is an interesting way of um, beginning to realize whether you have um, um, what it takes um, to carve out a niche for yourself um, that addresses some of these confusions and therefore to break away from the mold in comparison with um, the others that are in your network also competing for the same um, resources. So these are some of the, the things that I have kind of picked up as I have navigated these institutions and these networks. So, Brian, 
if people have limited resources or and are considering between a few different events and network building opportunities, how would you decide which one to choose, which ones to go to, which ones would you not choose to there go are, to? I think three broad ways of categorizing these kind of events driven networks. One of them is to um, recognize that often there's a tension between exclusivity um, and broad opportunity. So some networks are very trust dense um, and they focus on um, the degree to which a small group of people can trust each other enough that they can build real collaboration, which often involves a lot of resource and time um, and are not to be taken on lightly. Then there are some that are big and broad and they create very loose networks um, that are very good for sensing um, and understanding um, and you know your ability to understand what is going on around the world. If you're going to be some kind of entrepreneur, by which I mean you're going to build something new, um, whether through a non-profit or for-profit or social enterprise model or whatever model you choose, but it's really primarily about building something new that delivers services. And so that's very kind of like um, um, very specific. So if you're going to use a service delivery solution solving, uh, sorry, problem solving model, where you, you know some entity or some people or group of people depend on you deliver service that solves a problem and, and you are coming at it from a novelty point of view. So you're going to build it from, from new or you've already started building it anew. Then I call that entrepreneurial in that regard. And uh, I think you, you're probably better off with smaller, more exclusive networks because you're just not going to have the time to be running around building really loose networks. And your interest in being really good at sensing trends and you know knowing what is new and the rest of it will be perhaps muted for several years. Mm. So there was about four years that, or three years that I completely dropped off the scene. So even though I was doing one or two events every now and then and you know, doing some media, most of it was being orchestrated by my company. And my, my, in terms of my own personal engagement, um, it was very, very few people. So, and that was because as an entrepreneur, you just don't have the options. It's very difficult to be an entrepreneur at the same time um, have the energy to nurture a lot of loose networks. Hmm. So you have to decide what is it, what are you going to do? If on the other hand, you are trying to become an intermediary, which is another new, um, or, uh, yeah, a new insight I'm beginning to gain into how these things work. I'm distinguishing between entrepreneurs and intermediaries. Hmm. So intermediaries are people that are not building new channels or building new services or platforms or products to service um, problem-solving needs of targeted um, clients or partners or customers or whatever, they are often more interested um, in creating the connections and the mechanisms um, that enable discovery, um, that reduces transaction costs, um, that increases trust in the network and things like that. And they are very powerful and they are very useful. And sometimes, obviously, they are more powerful than entrepreneurs. Um, and if that's what you're looking to do in, you know, in your quest to contribute to being good or whatever, let me put it this way. There's a primary identity issue. You can be um, a pilot, you can be a whatever, but what is your primary identity? What is it about your understanding of your own mission uh, to significance? And it can be significant the lives of a few people, it can be significant the lives of your, fam your own family, but significance meaning that other people, when they have issues, they think of you. 
what is your primary identity in in delivering on that mission or in leaving out that mission? If your primary identity is as an intermediary, I'll propose that you go to broader, um, you build broader networks and that you go to events and you join groups that facilitate broader networks. Uh, for the UN General Assembly, the World Bank annual meetings, these are broad networks and that typically a lot of intermediaries flourish at. The more exclusive networks, like your the Young Global Leaders of the World Economic Forum, like the CARE Fellowship, requires deep investment in a small circle. It, there is, and that's where I make my second point. There is also a personality dimension. So first I've talked about the objective dimension. I'm talking now about the personality dimension. If you are some kind of uh, more inclining towards the extrovert side and less of an introvert, you might struggle a little bit with the kind of deep, dense networks because they involve um, sometimes a deliberate um, redrawing from broader networks in order to concentrate a lot more on those smaller networks. Um, and people tend to be a bit more cautious around extroverts because they're not sure who you're talking to, who else you're blabbing to. Uh, in my experience, I have struggled with deep network cultivation for another reason. Um, and that has simply been that, you know, as an entrepreneur um, who was trying to build systems, I was overwhelmed for many years for a while and I just wasn't keeping in touch. Now, if you're not keeping in touch even with your smaller circles, that's a big problem. So that is another issue, which is, I think of it as completely separate. But on the, on the general note, it tends to be the case that introverts really thrive in these kind of much smaller, denser trust networks, and where they invest a lot of resources and time and energy to build their trust, but also to reassure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you have to decide whether you are really comfortable in that kind of situation. Uh, if you're not, you're probably going to struggle with these kind of networks, and you want to probably be the kind of person that builds looser networks, even if you're an entrepreneur, because you are more focused on top-line growth than um, and, and creating more partnership opportunities and exploring that and doing a lot more public speaking and things like that. That might work. I mean, but in my experience, it's not very common. It's very difficult to be an Elon Musk-type figure, um, you know, driven by a lot of outward-facing activity um, while at the same time building something truly novel and truly scalable. It's very rare. Very few people have the personality um, to merge the two. So to simplify or to oversimplify, uh, your personality will be important in determining whether you're going to focus on a smaller exclusive circles or looser broader networks. Um, and whether in those smaller exclusive ne uh, networks, you're going to be successful in investing the time, the energy um, in building the trust that is necessary and the affection that is necessary. If you're not keeping in touch, if you're not you know, reaching out to people, if they don't come to you when there are social issue, uh, problems, if they don't come to you when they, you know, they are down, there's only there's one simple way to test your, your true network. Who comes to you with their problems? I mean, it's a very simple thermometer. So if a lot of people are not coming to you with important problems, you know, problems that are truly life-defining for them, then you don't really have a very deep network. It's as simple as that. So ask yourself how many people are coming to you with deep problems, um, embarrassing problems, problems that, you know, make them vulnerable. The fewer of those there are, the shallower your network. In which case, you need to start making a decision whether to broaden that network because you cannot have a shallow, small network. <laughs> it doesn't work. You have to have a broad, shallow network or a deep, small, exclusive network. So I think that is the second one. And I was talk making a point about it, about, it, about personality. 
And I think the third one is also your values and your ethics. It's, you know, you are the kind that is really driven by injustice and marginalization, exclusion, the rest. Uh, you might struggle with places where prestige is on display, regardless of the objectives um, and how well they meld with your personality. Uh, let's not mince words about it. Some of these um, networks you've mentioned in the, in, in the beginning um, are really exclusive and there's a lot of prestige associated with them, which also means that they are high, people of immense privilege um, often participating in these networks. If you have a politics that really makes you worry <laughs> about all the intentions mm -hmm. and the motives and all of these people, mm -hmm. um, I guess you have to be very a bit cautious you know, in these kind of networks. Um, those, I think, are will be the three main ones. Your objective and mission, your uh, personality and strengths, uh, as well as obviously weaknesses, um, and then your values and ethics. You've given us some great insights, some things I took away, which I totally agree with. Big is not always better. The names of who's there is not necessarily the most important thing. You know, that's the kind of shine. Uh, and it really comes down to a criteria that is personal. In before you pick your events, you should know your own, you have a good sense of your own personality, your identity, and what your goals are, because that is going to drive which events you should choose. And you've added that it's not only what you put in, but how you can measure what you're putting in is how many people are coming to you. What's the reaction? How many people are coming to you? So, you know, I met you. I know you're solving this problem or you understand this problem. How many people are coming to you? So, there are, how many people are coming to you is in two levels. One of which is people that trust your judgment, which is often very good in broad networks. Um, and people want to be associated with you, which is also very good with broad networks. But for deep networks, I think it's very critical that people come to you with vulnerable, with, with their vulnerability on display. So if people come to you with their mm -hmm. strength on display, typically it's broad networks and they know that you're well positioned in the network and they want to associate with that positioning. Mm -hmm. So if people are telling you a lot about the great things they are doing, um, it tells you that you are well positioned in a broad network um, and they want you to give, if somebody asks you who is doing this, they want you to refer them. Um, and it's one easy way to measure where you are and what type of network you're in. If on the other hand, they're coming to you with really vulnerable, embarrassing issues and the like, then you know it's a very trust-dense network and it's useful for achieving different things. So I think those are quick heuristics that you can use to judge where you are now um, and, and how you are positioning where you are. The type of, it's not just the reaction you're getting, but the type exactly. of reaction, the type of, and they're coming to you for questions. Cause that's, I think the basis of real partnership is rallying around the problem. And if they're willing to share that authentically uh -huh. with you, then that means that you have a probably a strong network connection. Uh -huh. uh, before, before we move on, do you have any other tips, advice to, let's say an early stage social entrepreneur that's just starting to dive into it and starting to build their network and find who their partners may be? Do you have any other tips before we move on to the next topic? Yeah, the tip is that most tens become projects very quickly, more quickly than you realize. So you, you start up something and it's like, okay, you know, just for this reason, um, let me give you an example. Say you go to um, an event and then a network develops out of that event. You do a nice WhatsApp group. And then in there, people start bubbling up about potential collaboration. And it looks very simple. And as you know, can we do a change petition and blah, blah, blah. Before you realize, um, it's become a project. And how rapidly things degenerate into projects <laughs> Uh, it's perhaps the mark of how you, you know, you should be careful not to blow credibility mm -hmm. by jumping into things that you are not willing, uh, if pushed up to shove, mm -hmm. to because people have become very offended and slighted 
because they got the impression that someone was interested in collaboration. Um, and then the, the, the WhatsApp message and the email stopped coming. Um, and then they tell other people that you're a flake. Um, and so you got to be cautious. Things very quickly become projects. A very few things are consume less time than you thought. Everything consumes three times more time than you thought. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a level of thoughtfulness, especially in your early stage uh, social entrepreneurs. You have to be so focused, mm-hmm. and it's it's hard not to be opportunistic, mm-hmm. especially if like someone's like, it sounds exciting, I like it. There may be even some money involved, but you have to be so focused as an early stage social entrepreneur. And I think that's a great uh, piece of advice. There is, you know, do look a little bit before you leap, uh, because. Because those contacts may in the future actually be a right place, right time. But if you use it on the quick one that comes first, you may be ending up hurting that potential relationship that could uh, be valuable down the line. So I think timing is everything. And um, it's easy to get caught up in excitement, especially when you're doing Uh good and you see the opportunity. It's easy to get caught up. Be careful about your credibility because if you send confusing signals, it's one of the quickest ways to start Mm -hmm. to lose credibility. Um, so if you give the impression that you are, you know, down for it and, you know, I'm the kind of a guy that you come to if you want to bounce up ideas um, and people get that signal and they start to react and you don't react back, you, you lose credibility very quickly. Perfect. Now, let's pivot back to you as a social entrepreneur. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit more about Empedigree, about what problems you're solving now what are the hardest ones you're trying to solve now? And why does that give your team satisfaction to take on things that are so challenging? So I'm um, even worse than that. And now, um, two years now, for, for the past two years, um, I have actually also semi-transitioned uh, into a role as a founder of a new spin-off uh, from Empedigree, um, working with my colleagues there, at least some of my colleagues there, um, on a new entity called Code Chain which is focused on addressing this problem of um, the quality of biomedicals, starting with vaccines. So the way that I put it is, mm. you know, the, in the future, um, almost all the important breakthroughs in medicine will be fo- will be biomed-led, you know, so it's going to be macromedicals, monoclonal antibodies. It's going to be using nature to solve problems that have arisen because of the imbalances we've created in nature. Um, and so it's going to be a lot of biological organisms and biological substances and you know objects brought back to try and fix um, all the things that we've broken in the human body and in the environment. Mm. That these things are very delicate, unfortunately, and they require more sophisticated supply chains. There is a, a parallel trend or a parallel stream of activity to try and build them so that they are not so fragile, but that is not yielding benefits as quick and results as quickly as possible. So the, 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 the only real, realistic um, and pragmatic choice is to use very sophisticated cold chains to transport these biomedicals. And by which we mean you need to refrigerate um, um, your transportation, your storage, etc. Unfortunately, uh, in many places, the, the accountability for that infrastructure is not very strong. So, you know, if there's a power outage and the fridge goes out, they don't repair it immediately. Um, if there is um, uh, low voltage and the fridge is not well performing as it should, maintenance is low. And so, so all of those problems, uh, the products that are being delivered are often not at their highest potency. Um, and very difficult to tell just by looking at the products. So we've come up with a polymer 
that goes on the surface of the, of the container that enables the nurse or whoever is about to administer that biomedical to use um, their, their phone, their, their, their camera phone, to do a quick snap of the surface of the, of the vial or other container and quickly be told if the, the medicine was uh, transporting the right temperature. Um, and this is something that we've been doing for almost uh, two years now. Um, and it's one of the, the big um, and new things in my life. The challenge with a solution like this is that unlike the previous solutions, where we could literally just grow organically from you know community to community, literally, um, this is slightly harder because uh, the market for vaccines and other types of biomeds um, in public health today um, are procured by large, typically intergovernmental or regional organizations. Um, and to influence them, we need power from the outset. So in the past, we scaled down in order to not need too much power. Um, and now we have to find influence and persuasion. Um, and to do that, we're having to relearn and to unlearn and to relearn a lot. And now I want to give you an opportunity because the last question that we're asking all of our guests this season is, is there another long-held tradition or legacy system that most people take as normal or a status quo that you would like to see broken? The big, I think the, the big one is this view that hard, complex problems um, can only be solved by traditional businesses. And if something is fluffy and, you know, it's, the, it's, the, it's problems of the mind and problems of the heart. So if something is a problem of the heart, you think of NGOs and social enterprises and all of these things because they are fluffy and we know what to do. It's just that we're not willing to do it and therefore we need someone to remind us um, and to make us weepy and then we'll do it. And those are the things that are for, uh, for non-profits and social enterprises. Um, and the truly smart problems, the truly smart people, the truly um, important issues of the world, and the truly relevant inventions um, must all be generated by classical business. I think it's a very pernicious, um, but really well-established paradigm to the point where we don't notice it. But every time that you think of um, a list of inventors, a list of something, you find out that the, the, we tend to amplify um, material objects and systems that typically runs through business. And we tend to assume that if, I think I need to simplify this more, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that we, we get into a world where the problems that we are trying to solve um, requires to recognize um, a new type of entrepreneurial leader where the measurement of outcome is not based on um, the traditional metrics of business success, um, tenure, revenue, number mm -hmm. of employees. We've got so bogged down there that we don't see how some of the most powerful things that run the world are actually very scrappy on the surface. So my argument is simple. How do we understand the nuts and bolts of problem solving in a way that enables invisible systems that truly drive change in the world such that we can apply them in new configurations to solve compelling problems. I think the current status quo 
of measurement of what success means, particularly the vanity metrics of success today across the board is damaging our greatest ideas from surfacing and preventing us from solving the most complex problems in the world. Right. You're an incredible problem solver who here in the last question has asked us to rethink and break our notion of how we solve problems, who solves problems, and how we measure the success of problem solving. So I want to thank you for your time, for your wisdom, for everything you've brought us today. Um, I want to know if people want to continue to learn about your organizations and about your work, what's the best way that they can continue to uh, you know, follow you and get, get in touch with you and see what you're doing? Great. So my own blog, brightsimons.com, B-R-I-G-H-T-S-I-M-O-N-S, um, our organization's website, mpedigree.com, M-P-E-D-I-G-R-E-E.com. And obviously on Twitter, which I've started to use also as a, a ventilating platform. Um, and that is at BBC, BB Simons. So B-B-S-I-M-O-N-S. Thank you, Bright. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. Thank you so very much, Joe, for, for, for bringing me out and pulling so much out of me. <laughs> Excellent. Great stuff. Thanks a lot. Great host, great conversation driver. I want to show my gratitude to everyone who made this episode possible. First, thanks to Bright Simmons for sharing his insights and wisdom with us. As well, a show of thanks to the network building organizations like Skoll Foundation, Ashoka, and TED, who create the kind of forums that leaders like Bright can be heard and engaged with. Thanks as always to our producer, Simon Green, who edits the podcast together and makes sure that everyone is sounding so good. The recording was done on Zencaster, hosted with SoundCloud, and spread on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode, you should check out episode nine, our interview with another award-winning social entrepreneur, Harish Hyundai. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can show your thanks by helping us out. I'm looking for real, authentic reviews. No fakes or counterfeits, please, on whichever platform you listen on. You can follow us on Twitter at Let's Break Good, subscribe to the podcast, and visit letsbreakgood.com for more information or to get in touch with the team. Until next time, I'm Joe Goda, and you've been listening to the Let's Break Good podcast. But life still goes on. I can't get used to living without, living without, living without you by my side.